If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today is International Women's Day, and to mark the occasion, we've got a special panel discussion all about women's history. Our expert panel tackles some of the biggest issues in the field, including overlooked historical figures, exciting recent developments, whether men should write women's history, and what work is still left to be done in telling women's stories. I was joined in the discussion by Helen McCarthy, Stella Dadzi, Nicola Phillips and Maggie Andrews. And as you'll hear, I started off by asking them all to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Helen McCarthy. I teach modern British history at the University of Cambridge Um, And I've written quite a few books uh, on women's history. Um, I wrote a book about women in British diplomatic life since the 19th century. And I've most recently just uh, published a history of working mothers in Britain uh, over the past century and a half or so. Hi, uh, my name is Stella Dadzi. I'm probably best known as one of the co-authors of the book The Heart of the Race and won the Martin Luther King Award for Literature 
but was recently republished by Verso as a feminist classic. Um, I recently uh, published a book called A Kick in the Belly, which looks at women, slavery and resistance. And I'm an historian, an education activist and a, a writer. Um, I'm Nicola Phillips. I'm a lecturer at Royal Holloway University of London. I'm also director of the Bedford Centre for the History of Women and Gender. Uh, my publications are on women in business, uh, a big section of which is about women and law in the 18th century. But I've sort of shifted towards gender history, so that's <laughs> going to be an interesting question. And worse still, my <laughs> latest book uh, was The Profligate Son, which was about intergenerational conflict between father and son. <laughs> so. And last but not least, uh, Maggie. Hi, I'm Emeritus Professor of uh, History at the University of Worcester. I spent a number of years writing in women's history, particularly around sort of domesticity, stuff to do with war. Um, and 20th century Britain, and recently wrote about motherhood and evacuation in the Second World War. Thank you all so much. So I wonder if we could do a kind of quick fire question before we get into some more in-depth discussion. So I wondered if you could just each nominate either a female figure or a moment in women's history that you think has perhaps been overlooked that we should know about. Yeah, I, I, I will. I mean, um, key milestones, obviously, uh, the suffragette movement has to be uh, top of our list, really. But as a black woman, I think I'd also want to mention uh, emancipation from slavery, which freed millions of black women from a 400-year yoke. And, of course, more recently, the civil rights movement, which brought the struggle against racism to the world's attention and also brought to our attention women like Nina Simone and Angela Davis. I think there are far too many overlooked women um, to name, but if we focus on women of Africa and African descent, I think some of the obvious ones are women like Queen and Zinga, who was as powerful and as influential as, as our own Queen Elizabeth I, Nanny of the Maroons, a Jamaican fighter who, who, who fought the, the militia in Jamaica on behalf of freed slaves, Mary Seacole, who, who gets more of a mention these days, I think her statue is up outside St Thomas's Hospital, uh, women like Mary Prince, abolitionist and uh, ex-slave. And of course, more recently, in terms of our own civil rights movement in this country, women like Claudia Jones and Olive Morris. One of the key figures that I would like to see more about, and that feeds into the theme of black women's history, but in the UK, would be Sarah Parker Remond, who was a civil rights campaigner, but she also campaign for women's education and she came over and studied in this country at Bedford College it's okay she's a bit of a home hero but um, she also traveled the country and spoke publicly in the Victorian period about women's rights and civil rights so yeah the Bedford Centre has been backing a campaign for greater recognition for her but on top of that, I'd like to see um, more public representations of women, uh, not just, well, I'm an 18th century historian, so not just Mary Wollstonecraft, but um, women who may be less well-known, such as business women like um, Hester Penny, who was perhaps the very first woman who ever went and worked and sold on the stock exchange in the late 17th and early 18th century, 
I'm, I'm also keen to promote women lawyers. So the first Indian lawyer, Cornelia Sarabhi, who qualified in Bombay, but then took the first law degree at Oxford, not that she could get the degree for another 30 years. Um, but she was also the first female advocate in India. If I can just sort of throw into there, not not names, but actually a sort of nervousness about our tendency to look for particular exceptional women or particular mm. milestones. Yeah, I want to make yeah. a real bid for the sort of the ordinary and the unforgotten woman, the women, frankly, for whom just making it to the end of the week is quite a heroic struggle, um, mm. who tend to be forgotten because they're workers and housewives and are not written about and do not appear unless they transgress massively um, in the in the archives. Um, and the difficulty of finding out about them, but also the unremarkableness, it seems mm. to people, in what they do, often gets forgotten. And I think it's it's really important we think about those and think also about what Obama talks about as the long arc of progress rather than suddenly something dramatic mm. happening because I think it is a long, steady backwards and forwards and sideways mm. rather than pivotal moments, um, which in the world of sort of, and I'm not one to talk, centenaries <laughs> and things like that, we tend to focus yeah. on. Yeah, that actually really, to me, resonates with your work, Helen, um, especially your recent book on working motherhood. Yeah, I mean, actually, the women who I was going to nominate uh, in response to this question are uh, these these group of, of female sociologists, and bear with me, it sounds very boring, but I actually find them very fascinating, um, who wrote about ordinary women, who wrote about, particularly about married women going back to work in the 1950s and 1960s. So I've become obsessed with this group of, of researchers, amongst whom we can count um, Viola Klein, Pearl Jeffcott, Judith Hubbock, uh, and Nancy Sear. And they all, in the course of those post-war decades, studied women's lives, mm. and they made visible this new trend amongst women uh, who wanted to go back into the workplace in their late 30s and 40s um, in order to have uh, more in something interest, more interest, um, more sociability, um, friendship, perhaps some money that they could control for themselves. And often the kinds of jobs that they were doing were not particularly high powered or particularly exciting. They might be working in a factory. They might even be doing cleaning. They might be doing some sort of locum teaching. Um, but what these this group of sociologists did was that they made this new model of women's lives visible. And they, they talked about it in, in aspirational terms, and they talked about it as something that was legitimate. Uh, and this is important because before the mid-20th century, there was a great deal of ambivalence around wage earning by mothers. And actually, the working mother was seen as a threat, was seen as a symbol of social and economic disorder. And I would argue that it's partly thanks to these sociologists that a new model and a new language and a new way of thinking about women's work uh, took uh, became embedded uh, in Britain in, in the second half of the 20th century. Nicola? Um, I'd like to go back to Maggie's point, but also link into Helen's, because I think this question of looking for ordinary women is really important. And so you could say that one of the milestones in women's history was from the early pursuit of women worthies, heroines, people to inspire towards ordinary women. So I'm thinking of Alice Clark's work on the life of working women in the 17th century, Ivy Pinchbeck um, in Women and Industrialization in the 1930s. But one thing I 
that we do still need women to be figureheads or to be more publicly known. I hope we come back to this when we talk about popular culture and public history. I think with um, black and ethnic minority histories seem to me to be almost replicating that arc of looking for um, women that we can find out about who can be inspirational uh, or heroines, if you like. And from there, it's broadening out. So I can see a different, an arc, a similar arc, and I'm hoping it goes the same way. Well, I think particularly those of us who've been hidden from history, we do need names. Mm. And I always feel myself sort of caught between that tension between always wanting to put individuals up on a pedestal, often with no regard to class or other issues, Mm. but also the need to acknowledge the the millions of unnamed, unvoiced women who who are also worthy of of note. And I think for me, certainly when I've been asked to talk, um, I'm often asked that question. People say, you know, which notable women would you like to to Mm. reference? And when I mention people like Nanny of the Maroons, I try to always remember that, or or to remind people that she's representative. Mm. She stands for the many, many women who probably existed, who were like her, who achieved as much as she did, but who have been lost to history because of the dynamics and and the way that that history is recorded by those who, who have the power and the voice. So I think, you know, there's always going to be a bit of a tension. And just thinking about your first question, Ellie, Mm. one of the things that occurred to me as I was listening to people speak is that perhaps one of the things that we can acknowledge as women is that sense of of, of collective achievement, the things that we do together as women. And I I think we we shouldn't forget, if we are going to name names, those collective women, women like the Grunick Strikers, you know, who came together and whose names may not be remembered other than Mrs Desai, who was the figurehead, but who collectively made such an impact. Yeah. Do you think that there's ever slight dangers about the need for figureheads in, in things like women's history? There's been a lot of um, books for children made recently. So, you know, good night stories for rebel girls, kind of badass women from history approach. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking of the example um, where Coco Chanel was in one of these books, but nothing was said about the fact that she may have had Nazi connections. And people say, well, the search for a hero is often a lot more complicated because people can have quite complicated legacies. I don't know whether you have any thoughts on on that need for a hero as opposed to a nuanced historical character. I think that um, we all want our heroes and sheroes to be perfect, don't we? But the reality is that history is made by ordinary people whose names are remembered. So I I think it's important that we are honest about people and that we portray them warts and all, um, because that is empowering. Um, If if our sheroes are only ever, you know, people of perfection, Mm -hmm. it makes it very difficult for us to then teach our daughters and our grandchildren that actually we may not be perfect, but we can still achieve some wonderful things. I totally agree with Stella that we need more nuanced histories, but I don't think that removes the need for uh, wider public recognition or or just seeing representations of them or, um, in the case of women lawyers, inspiring other women to join the profession. But they don't have to be perfect, I think the the other 
problem is this I love these books for children, but the the idea of rebel girls is a bit more problematic because it's always bad girls. You know, it's like somehow, but from doing what they are, they're not good. And there's the, there's the wonderful card about. Um, I'm always getting sent this. Good women don't make history, <laughs> but we don't problematize what rebel girls are and what good women are. So it's another black and white mirror image which in some ways is just as bad as having sheroes with no perspective mm. on their good mm. and bad points. Yeah I just want to sort of pick up on this this question of all the, the, the problem of representation of women in, in public spaces and in public history because I absolutely agree that we want to be going for complexity um, and we want to uh, we don't want to turn away from the less savory aspects of of of, of people's lives in in the past. Um, but at the same time, you know, we, there's been a great deal of controversy over over statues. And I think that the um, controversy over the Mary Wollstonecraft statue that was unveiled last November, and it was a sculpture by Maggie Hambling rather than a traditional conventional figurative depiction of Mary Wollstonecraft herself, actually really encapsulates some of those dilemmas about um, what sort of space and what sort of form uh, women from the past ought to uh, occupy in our public spaces. Uh, So I think that that's something that, um, and also kind of this question, just to pick up on the question before, about wanting to commemorate groups of women Mm -hmm. and the solidarities and connections and communities that women have built in the past. Uh, You know, how does one do that through a statue? move actually, as you say, to public history now. Um, so I just wonder if there's any um, developments in in public history that you guys find particularly exciting at the moment, whether interesting research being done, interesting books being published, activism, TV and film even, anything like that, that you are really kind of feeling fired up by in women's history. I think in some ways that that public history and the, the history that's done beyond the academy, which to be fair is where most women's history was done originally in the 70s, is one of the areas of most excitement at the moment because you have got people attempting to reconstruct their communities, their groups, their, 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 their stories about where they are, particularly at a local level often, um, from lovely stuff done on people doing oral histories of playgroups that were set up in the 70s to exploring the way that um, certain workplaces were in the past and I think that's quite an exciting thing because it's about that sort of sense of, uh, you know, many hands making history, many voices getting through. Having said that, <laughs> there is an incredible level of tension that operates between that and between um, those who do history within within universities um, that I think is is continues to be a problem. I mean, originally women's history and when I was a a student donkeys years ago, we were really lectured about the need to um, be able to communicate that women's history was supposed to be something that was accessible to lots of other people, that um, it was a political movement more than it was an intellectual movement, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And in recent years, that sort of got a little bit lost and the division between history that's done in communities and history that's done within universities has got, you know, bigger and bigger, I think. And although you get lots of people within universities feeling they're doing lots of public engagement activities, and I've spent years on it, 
Um, mm-hmm. Actually, the degree to which they are, I think, is really open to question. So I think there's more tension and issues around there. And partly that's to do with who feels that they're producing authentic history <laughs> and, um, and differences in how people judge that ideas of authenticity. So if someone's producing a, um, a television soap opera, be it Downton or Bridgerton or what have you, then it's judged as authentic according to other soap operas and television and media representations of the past, not according to what an academic regards as history. And they are inevitably very selective histories. They're there for the reason of engaging people and getting people to enjoy them. Um, And so there's something very, very different. They're also produced in a very different framework where and a very different economic framework. You can do very different sorts of research if you're operating on the budgets that most public history is operating mm. on, mm. compared to if you're sitting within a university with a with an income guaranteed from being employed. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that that gives you more freedom if you're sitting on a guaranteed income, like you say, from a university, rather than having to give an audience something that they are going to buy into? Because that surely limits what gets produced, perhaps. It could be more freedom or it could be more self-indulgence. It depends when we look at it. <laughs> it's a really yeah. tricky one, isn't it? Yeah. Can I just point out here that 50% of people working in universities today are on non-permanent oh, absolutely. contracts. Yeah. Absolutely. And Part precarity time. is a massive, yeah. massive problem. Yeah. And yeah. I think I would push back a little bit against mm-hmm. against what, what Maggie's saying. I mean, I, I totally... I accept you, you, that, that, that women's history sort of grew out of the women's movement in, in the 70s and was very politically and publicly engaged. Um, I do think that there's a lot of crossover um, conversation, dialogue and partnership working between um, women's historians in, in universities and, and in museums. Um, I mean, if we think about the recent centenary um, of the of, partial, of women's partial suffrage in, in 2018, there was a huge amount of collaboration between universities, massive partnerships. We were really surprised. Um, I chair the Women's History Network um, National Steering Committee, and we run a community history prize every year. And I got some investigation done on the people who, who entered and the projects that they entered, and we got someone to interview them about why, why most of them chose not to work with academics. And it was, it was a very interesting lesson in the mm. fact that they thought we were irrelevant, they thought we were <laughs> <laughs> inaccessible, they thought, you know, it was it was a real um, eye-opener, especially for someone who'd spent five years, six years, working on the First World War in community groups. It was that realisation that where we think mm. we're, we're reaching out, actually, we're, we're seen in a really different mm. way. And I think trying to engage with the problems around that is going to be one of the big, big challenges for the future, um, and I think, you know, engaging with those people for whom getting on the internet at speed is their only way of doing research is, is mm-hmm. one that we, we've got to get, mm-hmm. get to grips with. Um, just to pivot slightly, um, I wanted to ask you all about what you think the events of the last year may have kind of offered new perspectives or shed new light on, on telling women's stories in the past. So I'm primarily thinking of obviously COVID and uh, the Black Lives Matter movement? Well, I think that that COVID actually hasn't really offered any new perspectives on women's lives. It's revealed uh, or magnified or brought into focus long-running sexual divisions and inequalities, which Mm -hmm. we already knew existed and which 
feminist historians who've been writing about for a really long time. So if you close schools and nurseries, uh, you withdraw to stroke informal as well as formal forms of childcare, then immediately what becomes apparent is the differential impact that this has on men and women's um, ability to, to earn um, and to, uh, to, to work. So I think that for me, actually, in having researched the history of working mothers, COVID really didn't teach me any new lessons, but it just reminded me how fragile women's equality, particularly when it comes to work, uh, really is. It'll be interesting, won't it, to see what the gender historians of, say, 50 years time or 100 years time have to say about it. Um, yes, Stella, on to you. Yeah, I was I was just thinking about that question and, and the crossover between them, because I don't know about you, but I can't think of Black Lives Matter without thinking of the COVID context mm. and, and the fact that people came out on the streets despite the, the dangers and, and and all the issues that were going on at the time. I do think that Black Lives Matter has created a new interest in that whole business of decolonizing the narrative. Mm. And um, I'm often asked, for example, in the context of the book I've just written, whether there'd have been the same degree of interest in that book mm. two years ago. And the answer is a, a very categorical no. Mm. Um, not only is there greater media interest in these, these hidden narratives, um, but there's also a far greater interest, you see it online, on social media, from young people. Yeah. Um, almost in the way that our generation, my own generation, of, of young black activists, you know, the, in, the, in the 70s, late 60s, um, found a, a renewed interest in what was then called black history, just unearthing those stories and trying to, to find people we could identify with. So for me, there's a lot of crossover. The other thing I would mention in terms of COVID, you've mentioned, you know, the disadvantages that have been highlighted for women, but double that for black women. Mm -hmm. I mean, that whole issue of inequality, housing, poor access to medical care, discriminatory treatment within the medical profession, all of those things have really come to the fore in the context of, of COVID. So I think, you know, maybe 50 years on, as you say, there will be people who will look back on those, mm. on these issues and, and, and try to make sense of them. That in intersectionality is, you know, what obviously academics call it, but we might return to that in a moment. But um, Nicola, did you have something you wanted to add there? Um, yeah, just to support Helen's point earlier about um, COVID and childcare, and I couldn't help noticing that Women's History Review, which is one of the academic journals that promotes women's history, um, actually had a viewpoint section with articles on the relationship um, between work academic work, COVID and childcare. So if there are historians in the future, they're going to look back and see that women's historians were as politically focused around issues like this as perhaps we were decades earlier. I'm feeling quite old at the moment. <laughs> women's history for decades now. Um, which brings me to the second point, which links to Stella's, um, in that I think Black Lives Matter has made a huge difference, certainly in the department where I work, in conferences I've been going to, on in streams of discussion, in special sessions on uh, race and intersectionality, but on diversifying the curriculum, a lot more 
of that work is being done and workshops on decolonizing the curriculum, new imperial histories. It's 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 changing rapidly. And I think a lot of that started to come in, certainly at Holloway during the twenty during 2020. There were major moves to change it. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It was a really um, important endeavour to record the lives of feminists for perpetuity. I think it's available now for researchers for the next couple of hundred years. And I think those kinds of projects are really important in terms of not just recording, but also preserving women's histories for future generations. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist recommended facial moisturizer brand. Obviously, for half an hour, we've been talking about, quote, women's history. But I actually wanted to ask you about what your thoughts about that term are. Um, Because, I mean, women's history encompasses half the population of the world. So how useful do you think that label is for either prioritizing women's stories, bringing them to the fore, um, giving a kind of focus for putting those um, stories forward? Or do you think there's a point where it might become redundant and that women's stories can just be integrated into all of history. Um, I know Maggie, as chair of the Women's History Network, maybe you want (laughs) to offer an opinion on that. (laughs) I'm not going to make an argument that it's going to get rid of. To me, I mean, it's about a prioritising. History is always about Mm -hmm. which particular spotlight you shed, which particular set of tools you take out of your box to look at at, at, at something. Um, And as broad and as, as 
um, vague and as mixed as as the term women may be, um, it it's it's a long way before you know it gets integrated. And I think we still need very firmly, mm-hmm. both for women historians and for the history curriculum, to get that fi- fix. I suppose fixed point of saying, look, think about women's history. Um, so I would, you know, commit it very firmly. I think it's a long way also before it gets seen in the same ways um, in terms of, uh, I suppose, status, for want of a better word. You know, it's not been integrated into mainstream history. And I would say the same about black history. I'd say the same about queer history. These have not really been massively integrated. They're there. They're beginning to ask more questions. Long term, has it really shifted? I'm not sure. And I think to create spaces, which is what the Women's History Network tends to do, where that spotlight is very firmly there, and when people who are working in those areas feel that they'll get that level of support and that they will be, you know, prioritised rather than marginalised, I think is really important and, and, and will be for quite a long time. Well, <laughs> it's going to see me out for several years. But <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, Stella, yeah. Yeah, I, I think the term women's history is a little bit um, like black history, as Nicholas said, um, and it's problematic, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it provides us with a focus that allows us to highlight those hidden narratives, but it can also be used as a get-out clause. And certainly in terms of black history, what you find is you have Black History Month, White History Year, there's this flurry of activity around um, whenever it is, October in, in this country anyway, um, to look at historical black figures or, or whatever, and then it all goes silent. And I've argued for some time, actually, that I feel the term Black History Month has almost um, outlived its sell-by date. And I, I think, you know, it also allows people to see black history as something that's completely separate from the mainstream, which is dangerous because... Mm-hmm. It allows people to say, well, that's what happened to them. But what was going on in the real world, you know, as if black history comes from another planet. Now, I agree with you that that it's been helpful as a, a means to provide a focus, to allow people to just focus down and say this is what it is. But I do think that ultimately women's history, like black history, will, will need to be reevaluated because it needs to be mainstream. It needs, mm-hmm. needs to be naturally arising. It shouldn't be some separate entity. Mm-hmm. It does suffer. I mean, all these things suffer from being ghettoized, if that makes sense. And I think yes. they do. They get shunted in mm-hmm. into one corner. Um, but if it's ghettoized or not getting in there, I, I guess, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's where we have to go. Yeah, well, I, I mean, this this kind of battle over labels has been actually going on for quite a long time, certainly within the field, uh, between women's history, feminist history, uh, and gender history. Um, I sort of fudge it by generally telling people that I'm a historian of women and gender, um, <laughs> which kind of covers sort of all eventualities. But um, I do think that gender as a category of analysis is helpful. I mean, sometimes it can be seen as as uh, as sort of acting in opposition to women's history. But I think that that gender is an analytical tool that has become increasingly embraced across the profession. I wouldn't say it's mainstreamed, but I do think that it's now become pretty commonplace for historians, whatever they study, to use gender as an analytical tool to think and and using gender as an analytical tool inevitably requires um, asking the question: Where are the women? 
or how, you know, how is this experienced differently by women? Uh, so if you're studying military history or diplomatic history or the history of high politics, which are not fields in which women historians have, have generally um, been prominent, uh, you can see that gender opens up all sorts of new perspectives and new avenues and actually can radically transform the way we might think of those rather sort of male-dominated fields. So I think that gender history... Um, can work alongside women's history in ways that are really helpful for mainstreaming yeah. across the profession a greater sensitivity to and just asking the question where are the women mm. uh, is is really rad can be radically transformative. I mean, um, we agreed to change. We we voted to change the Bedford Centre of the History of Women to Women and Gender, but it's also was to reflect the methodological change and the theoretical approach that anything we say about women is always already gendered. So as well as it leads into, as Helen was saying, different ways of thinking about them, but it also highlights the fact that women are part, you know, have to be seen within social situations. So we have to look at them not not just alone, but in respect to men, and in doing that, gender helps us reconceptualize um, age-old relationships like patriarchy, and we can re-theorize them and see how they can affect both men and women in order to engage better with women's lives, I think, and how we think about them. Um, well, something that I did want to ask you all about was, what do you think about the idea that men should write women's history? Or some people would argue that men shouldn't write women's history. What is your opinion on that? I think they should. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say that because I'm a woman who writes histories of masculinities, but Mm -hmm. also there are a number of men who have and can write it very well. And men have supported the suffrage movement from the start. And... I think actually it helps change history for both topics if we could, both men and women can write it. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's been a long debate in terms of whether white people should write black history and I've always argued that anybody should be able to write any history. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think that, that, that it's helpful to, to deny people access to each other's histories. I think it's absolutely vital. Um, and also, I mean, just to be... A little bit humorous. I think men writing about women's history gives it a kind of gravitas that traditionally women have had to fight for. <laughs> Worryingly, yes. <laughs> Maggie, did you have something you wanted to add? There? I was just going to say, actually, worryingly, yes, in a, in a way that is is sort of slightly, you know, feels we might have quite a long way to go. I have no, I mean, I have no problem with men writing women's history, but I do think that, and it, it's quite. I think it's also quite interesting for men to come into spheres um, around women's history and and see what it's like to be in a sphere in which they're marginalised, if that makes sense. (laughs) Um, So um, I willingly, unwillingly dragged one of my my sons, who's a postdoc at Cambridge, along to a a conference I was going to there about early modern violence. Um, And, you know, he said it was the first time in his career he'd ever been in a situation where really, you know, the majority... There were like four or five other men um, in the room. And it was quite fascinating how they responded. So some were, were, were quite, you know, positive. Others decided to do quite a lot of man man explaining to us um, and, and nearly got 
you know, thumped by the people next to them. So, I mean, I think it's it's absolutely fine, but I also think mm. there is a level of sensitivity that people need to, 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 to take on board if they're going to do those things, as I would expect I should be when I'm hitting on issues of race, because I know that I haven't got the same cultural background or... Um, or almost sort of awareness from lived experience that might be motivating mm. the ways in which I, I, I do mm. that history. So I think, yeah, mm. it's absolutely great. I think it's it's mm. fine. Women's History Network, you know, is absolutely open to men or women who are interested in women's history. But I think one should mm. do it with some sensitivity. Helen. Yeah, I mean, the dynamics of teaching women's history to undergraduates can oh. be very interesting. When mm. I've... Um, I, the module that I taught last year, it was on women and gender uh, and work. It was entirely female. And when I've taught in my previous institution, uh, a course called Gender and Politics, there would always be a, a ratio of about 80% women, 20% men. And actually managing some of the discussions, some of the seminar discussions, could be quite challenging because of some of the dynamics around, around gender and the sexual politics of the classroom and, and some of the topics that were being that were being discussed around, around feminism, uh, for example. So it's, you, you know, Maggie's right that the dynamics can feel very different. It can be a rather different sort of environment in which to teach history as well as to write it. Um, just to kind of circle back to the point we were talking about on, on the broad scope of women's history now, obviously because it encompasses such a range of identities and experiences. How do we kind of meaningfully incorporate um, those experiences into women's history or how do we bring them to light better? I mean, I think at one level it's impossible. You can't, you can't get it all in. And I think some of the shifts that have gone on and some of the developments that have been in recent years is an indication of that. So I'm fascinated by the, and I'm guilty of moving that way, that the turn, for instance, towards biography, where there's been a lot of, of biographies written, because actually, instead of making any claims that what you're doing is absolutely typical, you maybe use one person to show the complexities and go outwards from there. I think the turn towards local history, there's been quite a lot of very local studies, because actually, huge local differences, even within uh, the UK. So I think it's, there's a mixture going on there because I don't think you can encompass um, it all. It's, it's not possible. Um, the point almost is to get to people that across to people the complexities of, of, of difference of how um, if you're writing women's history, it's going to be different if you're looking at this area or that area. This age group is another, as, as Nikki mentioned, a huge, huge issue in there. Um, of issues of class, which which has sort of got pushed off the agenda a little bit recently, and yet is hugely important in these things, as well as issues of, of race, religion, all sorts of things. So I think it is actually about um, trying to be aware of that complexity and also trying to be very aware that one is not laying claims to a general when one's doing a particular, if that makes sense, in terms of the history that you're writing, you know. Um, it shouldn't be that some areas are not are off limits or that some areas are more important than others, but that actually you don't lay claim to this is everyone's experience when actually it's it's this group of people's experience in this point in time, at this place, in this, you know, country or part of the country. Yeah, I, I agree both points of view. It is incredibly difficult to bring it all together. And I used to teach 
women's history courses and we focused on women. I taught 18th century women, but over <clears throat> a couple of decades. But this is... <laughs> This has evolved and it's now uh, a course called Sex, Society and Identity in the 18th century. And whereas you can't have just women or just race or just class, you, we, we can and do have uh, topics each week uh, on femininity, on masculinity, on race, on age. But like Helen, the split almost every year is 80-20. But at least there is some way of, of trying to get them to think more inclusively within one class. But I, I wouldn't want to give up purely women's history classes either. Yeah. Um, Stella? No, I just wanted to uh, rem- uh, just mention, because we haven't referred to it yet, the importance of oral history and how mm. important oral history is in helping us to bridge the divide that we've been talking about between academic and, and, and community uh, voices. Um, I know when we were writing The Heart of the Race, where we wanted to present uh, the black women's voice as if there's such a thing, that was you know, an implicit challenge in, in, in doing uh, justice to the, to the subject. And we got around it by interviewing the widest range of women we could possibly access, you know, in terms of age, in terms of background, in terms of uh, countries of origin and so on. And I think um, quite often women's history has has been served well by a deference mm. to the value of oral history. I know when we brought the book out, it was almost poo-pooed as not being, you know, proper history or serious history because we relied on the voices of women. But mm. I think those attitudes have begun to change and I think that's a really important um, uh, uh, weapon in our arsenal. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about changing attitudes, I just wondered if you could give some um, perspectives on how, over the course of your careers, you've seen attitudes towards women's history change. Feminism, or some aspect of it, always used to be part of uh, women's history courses. Um, certainly when I started out, Women's history was political and that was part of it. Um, but I noticed, oh, I think it was around the early, you know, the 2000s, there was a feminist black backlash and that was reflected in the classes. I got young female students saying, we don't want to study that. And I was like, <laughs> okay. Um, and after a bit, I did change the way the course was structured, and I'm ashamed to say, okay, that feminism section disappeared. It was also problematic for the male students. And to be fair, I was also interested in other things. But then um, more recently, you know, it's come back again. I have um, young, particularly postgraduate students, I see them, who, you know, are hugely feminist you know it's new feminism it's a different viewpoint and they are enormously brave and will not be quiet so it's almost come full circle Mm -hmm. Helen yeah I'd actually that trajectory fits exactly my experience as well so I went to university in the late 90s and early 2000s where it was very much the era of 
you know, post-feminism, feminist backlash. It just was not cool to, to, to describe yourself as a feminist at all. And I think that was reflected in the sorts of subjects that undergraduates wanted to study. But then, you know, 10, 15 years on, um, it was really transformed. And I think that, you know, there has been a real resurgence amongst young women. Um, and you think about the, the Women's March in 2017, it, you know, really, really exciting. And that, I think, um, has meant that there's there's, there's a great appetite, um, particularly for, for histories of feminism, histories of sexuality, mm-hmm. um, histories uh, of, of black women. Uh, and that's very much reflected in the kinds of topics that my undergraduates want to write dissertations on, for example. There's a big appetite for writing histories of women, particularly in the 20th century, histories of feminism uh, in all its, its different aspects, and, and also and very much taking an intersectional approach as well. I, I'd just like to add that um, I've seen over the years a sort of stream of young women come to my door asking for interviews on the back of mm. um, the work we did in the uh, black women's movement in the 70s and 80s. And it used to be, you know, rare people from Japan or the United <laughs> States who were, who were doing a, a, a dissertation. But now it's a steady stream and um, a steady stream of quite diverse people, though primarily young black women. So I think that interest has changed. The other thing I was thinking about as you were talking, Nicola, was just um, the role of the archive. I don't know whether it's because I've got my own archive at the Black Cultural Archive in Brixton, but um, I'm often told that um, my archive is one of the most visited now which which i think is 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 um empirical evidence really that there's 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 an up, upsurge in interest in these issues and it's increasingly being seen as having some kind of academic credibility which in the past was not the case how have you how have you seen that maggie with the women's history network particularly the part i think of also a sort of career that stretches back really quite a long way <laughs> so that you know it, it is interesting when i first got <laughs> you know, got my first job, it was a job that actually advertised for someone to teach women's history. And that's quite rare nowadays. I was in a work situation where if I said to people, which I remember doing, I can't do that meeting at 8.30 in the morning, I have to take children to school. Everyone jumped back and went, oh, I'm terribly sorry. Um, That's not the environment most people are working in now. Um, And I think, uh, you know, there are some real shifts and changes. Um, so I think sort of structurally, actually, there is less bending over backwards to try and get some women's history in there in some respects. On the other hand, what I see is an enormous growth of young people doing women's history. We've got our first student, co- you know, women's history, stu- women's history network student conference on the 8th of March. We've got 30 people speaking. We had 100 or so applicants. They were just amazing. You know, the standard of material that we saw when we we, we launched our first MA and our undergraduate dissertation was just phenomenal. So there is a real interest amongst youth in working on it. You know, there is a massive enthusiasm out there. And I would say the same, actually, outside you know, sort of academia, the the entrance we get in for our community history prize each year just indicates a lot of which are oral history. That's still really huge interest that it that is there. Can Nicola. I just add, I think um, I'm so thrilled to hear what Maggie's saying about a student women's history conference, but we still have a big problem 
getting women's history onto the school curriculums. Um, this is something that the Historical Association has been trying to do for some time, and I think Women's History Network has as well. Um, certainly the Bedford Centre has, but we can't seem to push open the way, perhaps because it's so regulated. Um, and we have school children coming and listening to talks on women's history, and they love it. I think that leads me leads me quite nicely on to um, what, it's probably going to be my final question because I'm aware that we're running out of time, which is just about what work is left to be done um, for women's history and also what you see as the future of the field. Well, I'll kick off. I think mm -hmm. um, there are so many hidden histories. We've already uh, referred to that. And um, for me, you know, the role of black women in civil rights, stories of women migrants, uh, women trade unionists, women who made a difference or are making a difference on the African continent. There's just an endless number of areas that I think have, have yet to be explored. In terms of the future of women's history, I think um, hopefully more and more recognition of the unvoiced, invisible women um, and more and more focus on the contributions of women worldwide. We haven't talked about Eurocentricity in this discussion, but there is a lot of Eurocentricity, mm -hmm. um, even in women's studies. So I think that there is a need to broaden out, to acknowledge that diversity cuts in lots of different ways and to include um, women from other parts of the world. I think there is masses still to be studied. I mean, we've only studied tiny <laughs> bits. So there's mounds out there. Um, but I think in terms of the future, it's really quite fascinating because I think there is that, there is more of a sense now than there was. And I think Black Lives Matter has reminded us of how, how narrow the field in which uh, we look at women's history often is and has, has really made us sort of um, think more introspectively about the selectivity of the histories we study but I think also the, the there is very little to be said that's positive out of COVID. There really is. However, <laughs> one of the things that is interesting out of it is that um, actually the shifting of all sorts of engagements online, the mass of seminars and conferences and what have you mm. on, online, has given all sorts of people um, the ability to interact out of their silos in ways that I think they hadn't mm. done before. And I find that really quite exciting. So I've, you know, listened to speakers from other parts of the world. I've listened to stuff that I would not have trudged my way up to London um, to go and listen to. But because it's online, you can you can engage with it. So I do think, strangely enough, that the, the one positive thing, might be the only positive thing that might have come out of COVID, is that actually online is going to enable us to, to speak to people in different spaces and places and their different sorts of histories and their different approaches to history, which is going to be very exciting in the future. Yeah. Um, Helen, did you want to go next? Yeah, it's just making me think of all the um, the 5pm seminars, which I usually can never get to because my kids have just got back from school. Um, but I've been sort of listening in with my camera off and my microphone off. I've just been listening in whilst making the spaghetti bolognese. And that's actually been really nice because there have been all sorts of conversations that I've been able to at least to listen to that, that I would never have been able to attend. Uh, but actually, I've been running my own um, series of workshops online this, uh, this term 
on um, on Britain in the 1990s. I'm very interested in contemporary history, history of the very recent present. And I think that's an area where actually there's lots of really fascinating work to be done on women's lives. The 1990s is a really interesting era um, for women. Um, it hasn't really been properly historicized yet. You know, what happens to feminism in the 90s is fascinating. As we, as we sort of mentioned before, is this, a, is this a kind of low point for feminism? Is this the era of post-feminism, feminist backlash? Uh, is it also an era in which we see various breakthroughs for women in terms of their um, entry to higher education, their entry into the professions? Uh, is it also an era in which we see greater polarisation in women's lives, with some women reaching those higher kind of career successes and others um, being stuck in, in precarious, low-paid um, employment? Uh, and of course, it's the era in which the internet and mobile phones become part of our lives. Uh, and that has hugely significant impacts for women, both positive, perhaps in terms of connecting women across the world, connecting, um, it's sort of injecting new energies into feminist organising. But of course, it's also the origins of many of our problems around online harassment, pornography, um, uh, trolling. Uh, so I think there's very much, you know, the, 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 the sort of field is open there to kind of, to write the women's history of the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And I'll look forward to reading that. Um, Nicola, did you have any concluding thoughts? Uh, yeah, just first to say I agree with Helen. Um, Women-friendly timings and online. The other thing, well, there's two things. One is I think that the emotional turn in history is something that will help both women's history and gender history and is opening up all sorts of new ways. Um, and if I was going to relate it specifically to women, I, I think it's helping us to think about women and politics and women and law a lot more broadly. The elephant that's about to come in the room <laughs> is um, transgender history. And we already have uh, some really great work on gender fluidity in the early modern period um, on male to female cross-dressing and female to male cross-dressing. But at some point, I suspect the issue of transgender women and women's history is going to have to be debated. Mm. Amazing. Thank you all so much. Did anyone have any last points they want to just throw in as a final hand grenade? Stella. <laughs> Um, not a hand grenade, Ellie, but I did want to just give a plug for the um, the Sisterhood and After project that was run by uh, the British Library in collaboration with the University of Sussex. Um, I was part of that project. It was a really um, important endeavour to record the lives of feminists for perpetuity. I think it's available now for researchers for the next couple of hundred years and I think those kinds of projects are really important in terms of not just recording, but also preserving women's histories for future generations. Many thanks to today's panellists, Helen McCarthy, Stella Dadzi, Nicola Phillips and Maggie Andrews. There's a whole lot more on women's history and some of history's most remarkable female figures at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when John Withington will be speaking about assassins through history. 